Welcome to the Highland Sermon Podcast, where we share with you the sermons that are preached by the pastors at Highland Community Church in Kokato, Minnesota. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast so that you will be notified when new episodes are available. Let's get into this week's message. In my last 10 years of preaching, there have been two occasions where an event happened that was so momentous and that it caused me to set aside the regularly scheduled sermon and talk about what was happening in our culture. It happened in 2020 when COVID broke out, and now it, uh, it happened also in 2014 with the Obergefell decision legalizing same-sex marriage, but I think this is the third time when such an event has happened. It leaked Monday night that there was a Supreme Court decision authored by uh, Justice Alito that is looking like the overturn of Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. When Politico published this leak, I think our culture has just erupted with what exactly is going on. There have been protests outside the Supreme Court. There have even been protests outside Judge Kavanaugh's home. And all throughout our culture, at our places of work, the places where we hang out, people are asking the question, what is going on with abortion? Well, political intrigue is not our focus this morning. As Christians, we need to ask a different question. Francis Schaeffer poses the question for us well. How now shall we live? In light of what's happening in our culture, how do we respond? And when our culture is up in arms with people fighting seemingly on both sides of this abortion issue, the question is, what should God's people think? How should God's people live? And what does gospel-centered living look like in a potential post-Row world? That's the question that we're going to be exploring this morning. I'd like to suggest five thoughts for gospel-centered living in a potential post-Row world. Now, normally what we do is we take a section of Scripture, and I believe that it's good practice to take a section of Scripture in a large context of Scripture to work our way through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, so that you can see how each line of each story kind of fits into the overarching redemptive storyline of God. That's almost always what we do. We're not doing that today because there is no one topic no one passage that lays out God's thoughts on abortion. If we're going to tackle that topic, we have to look to many passages throughout God's Word. And so the, the potential weakness in doing a sermon like this is that the thoughts could maybe be derived more from my own brain than from the text of God's Word. But with that, with that warning as a pastor to myself and to you as the audience, we want to test everything against God's Word. And so I want to do my best to ground every thought I share with you in God's Word. And so we're going to be bouncing to various verses throughout God's Word as we undertake this very difficult topic this morning. So how do we live gospel-centered lives in a post-Row world? Are you ready? Okay, I'm not ready yet. I need to explain one more thing. So normally when I preach, I start by laying out the information and then I shift to the application. And so normally 
Like points one and two would be more the heavy information point, and then we go to the application point. But I need to start with an application point this morning, and so we're going to sandwich the information around the application. So we're going to go application, information, application. Here's why. Because I know statistics, and statistics tell us that one out of every four women has had an abortion. And so in a church our size, we can't dive into such a personal topic without starting with the understanding of how real the impact of this issue is. And so my first point is addressed to any woman out there who has had an abortion. We have to start here. Here's point number one. Your identity is in Christ, not your abortion. The evangelical church has become so synonymous with the pro-life movement that it can feel unsafe, it can feel unwise to open up in a church and say, you know what? I've had personal experience with this issue. I find it rather sad that the church would be known as a place where you would carry around the stigma of your sin. But so often people feel that way because Christians are seen on the news advocating so strongly to end abortion that it's as though anyone who has had an abortion carries around a scarlet A. And can I just say We need to speak into that because gospel-centered living requires gospel-centered thinking. And gospel-centered thinking begins with 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. And 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Satan wants to get us stuck in our past, and Satan wants to tell us that our identity is the worst thing we've ever done. And so if you think over the course of your life of the worst thing you've ever done, maybe it was a moment of sexual immorality, maybe it was a hidden pornography addiction, maybe it was a betrayal of one of your close friends, maybe it was an outburst of rage that has caused immense destruction in your family, maybe It was an abortion. I don't know what your thing would be, but Satan would say to you, everywhere you go for the rest of your life, you wear your sin and you wear your shame. But the gospel of Jesus Christ said, Jesus wore your sin to the tree so that you could wear his righteousness instead of your unrighteousness. And Jesus wore your sin as his own so that you can wear his purity as your own. And something happened on the cross, and the Bible calls it new creation, that if you are in Christ, you are no longer in your old identity. And you need to hear this so clearly because in a world that says you are defined by what you've done, the gospel says you are defined by what Jesus has done in your place. And that is our hope. Amen. Amen. Hear this. Jesus binds up what sin broke. Jesus restores and heals what we harmed. And you say, well, pastor, why do you begin the sermon with that? Here's why. Because I know that abortion hurts people. It was in 2018 that the National Institute of Health website released a report from Sage Open Med. The author, David Reardon, wrote this in the study, and I quote, abortion is consistently associated with elevated rates of mental illness compared to women without a history of abortion. As a pastor, one of the hardest things that has happened to me is having a precious young lady come up to me and say, I've had an abortion. Am I welcome here? 
Maybe you can relate to the pain of abortion. I think the best expression of how painful abortion is to the people who go through the process is found not in in a religious song, but in a song written by secular singer-songwriter Ben Folds. Have you heard his song, Brick? It's a haunting song. Speaking about this song, before I share with you the lyrics, describing it, Ben Folds said, quote, This song is about when I was in high school. Me and my girlfriend had to get an abortion. It was a very sad thing. I didn't really want to write this song from any kind of political standpoint or to make a statement. I just wanted to reflect what it feels like. What does it feel like to have an abortion? Listen to the words. Brick by Ben Folds. Uh, 6 a.m., day after Christmas, I throw some clothes on in the dark. The smell of cold, car seat is freezing, the world is sleeping, I'm numb. Up the stairs to her apartment, she is balled up on the couch. Her mom and dad went down to Charlotte, and they're not home to find us out. And we drive. Now that I've found someone, I'm feeling more alone than I ever have before. They call her name at 7.30. I pace around the parking lot. And then I walk down to buy her flowers and sell some gifts that I got. Can't you see? It's not me you're dying for. Now she's feeling more alone than she ever has before. And she's a brick. And I'm drowning slowly. Off the coast and I'm headed nowhere. As weeks went by, it showed that she was not fine. They told me, son, it's time to tell the truth. And she broke down and I broke down because I was tired of lying. I'm driving back to her apartment. For the moment, we're alone. She's alone, and I'm alone, and now I know that she's a brick, and I'm drowning slowly. If you're feeling the pain of an abortion in your past, feeling like the woman in the song, feeling like the boyfriend in the song, I need you to know that if you are in Christ, God sees you not as the abortion person, but as the in Christ person, Because if you are in Christ, your identity has been completely transformed. The words that Jesus spoke, the church of Jesus Christ can speak over you. Neither do we condemn you. Run to the gospel because there's healing in the gospel. That was important. But I said we were going to sandwich application, information, application, So having begun with the application that the gospel is what brings healing, let's now move to our second point. And the question we need to ask is, is it biblical to hold to a pro-life position? Our next two points are going to cover the information about that. I'd like to begin with this thought. A God loves pre-born people. As believers, I believe we need to be ready to address the question that people in our culture are asking. And the question that people in our culture are asking is this, is abortion wrong? Lots of opinions on this question. Every rational, reasonable person acknowledges that murder is wrong, but there's not that same agreement on whether abortion is wrong. Why? Because people aren't sure if abortion is murder. How could they not be sure? Because The question comes down to, who is a person? See, if personhood begins at birth, if you're not a person until you come out of the womb and take your first breath, then taking something out of the womb and killing it is no different than squashing a bug on the sidewalk or going deer hunting. 
So is there something different and unique about what is developing in the womb? And I'd like to suggest that there is, and I want to do that by touring some scripture with you, and I believe that this scripture shows us that God loves preborn people. But even before we get into that scripture, one quick caveat, and the caveat I share because we want to be fair in what we can know and what we can't know. So here's our caveat with what we can't know. We do not know when God puts a soul into a person. Now, we know from Scripture that all people have an inner self and an outer self. They have a shell, a body, and a soul or a spirit on the inside. So we don't know when in the process of developing in the womb the outer self, the body, God implants the inner self, the soul. So even though we don't know that, I still believe we can confidently argue that God loves preborn people. And here's why. Three verses. Let's start in Psalm chapter 139, verse 13. Here's what it says. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And the verse continues in verse 14. And it says this. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows that. Very well. If God oversees the development of a baby in the womb, if God oversees how each sinew, how each muscle, how each limb comes together, then God must care about this preborn person. Let's continue to the next verse, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This is, Jeremiah, uh, this is God talking to the prophet Jeremiah. And God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So Jeremiah's life destiny was decided before he was even begun to be stitched together in his mother's belly. Before he was a glint in his father's eye, God had a plan for him. And it's not just Jeremiah. The New Testament tells us that God had a plan for us as well. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Here's what Paul says. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. When did God choose people? Uh, before the foundation of the world. Now, how many women were pregnant before the foundation of the world? That's an easy one. Zero. But God knew each person that would be born before he even laid the groundwork of creation. So if God knew each person who would be born, God had to care about them before they began the process of being born, before they began the process of developing. So God chose, God loved, God oversaw the development of people yet unborn. That leads us to the conclusion that he values them and so must we. And that leads us into my next point. Abortion destroys the image of God. See, the question is, is abortion wrong? Abortion is only wrong if abortion does something to the image of God. Why do Christians grieve the 63 million plus babies who have been aborted in the 50 years since Roe? Because abortion harms the image See, the word to abort can actually be defined as to bring to a premature end. So God has a plan 
for a child. God has a purpose for the child. He's knitting the child together in the mother's womb, and something happens to bring to a premature end the destiny of this child. What is it about abortion that's wrong? Well, to understand what about abortion is wrong, we have to go back to what God says to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. See, after Noah and his family stepped off the ark, God began to talk about rules for living post-ark. And here's what he said to Noah. He said, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require and from people. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning from the life of man. Why? Here's why. Genesis 9, 6 tells us, whoever sheds the blood of a human being, by a human being his blood shall be shed, for God made humanity in his own image. Why are people more important than animals? Why are people more important than plants? Because people have the image. What is the image? The image is a special imprint of God's likeness that is stamped onto every human soul. And that's why it matters more if you hurt a human than if you hurt an animal. So if you walk out of church after the spring rain this morning and you see a worm slithering on the sidewalk and you're like, nope, 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 I don't want to see this thing. I'm going to send this worm to meet Jesus. And you do. You owe no penalty to anyone because the worm has no inherent worth. If you go out for Mother's Day lunch this afternoon and your mom decides she wants to eat Nemo for lunch, there's nothing wrong with that. Get it char-grilled with coconut flakes on the side. It's going to be wonderful. There's something special about people that is not true of fish or cows or pigs. People matter. Why? Because people are imprinted with the stamp of the image of God. So here comes the question. The question is, if we don't know when people get a soul... How can we know that people yet unborn have the image? That's a great question. I think the answer is found in the Old Testament law in the book of Exodus. While we are no longer required to obey every detail of the Old Testament law because Jesus kept the law on our behalf, the Old Testament law continues to provide us insight into the heart of God, and we can uh, gather from the Old Testament law, in this case, God's heart about unborn people. So listen to what God revealed in his law in Exodus chapter 21. It says this, when men strive together, and you're like, okay, that sounds like people are playing like some role play board game and they're all on the same team. But that's, that's not what it means. When men strive together basically means when dudes throw hands, right? Like when guys get in a brawl and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. He shall pay as the judges determine. So if, if guys are fighting, and, and some guy just like throws a haymaker into a woman's tummy, and it causes her to give birth prematurely, but the baby's okay, you get fined. But, notice what the verse goes on to say. But if there is harm... Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If you harm 
the unborn child of a pregnant woman and you cause the unborn child to die, you will pay the same price as if you caused a living, already born person to die because the child is living in the womb. And so God says the value of a child in its mother's womb is incalculable. That leads me to conclude that the child must have the image. Because if there was no image, there would be no value. So when our society says it's just a clump of cells, when our society says it's an intrusion in its mother's body, we say, no, it's the image of God. That leads me to conclude that abortion must be a justice issue. Because if justice is required, then we see God's hand of justice at work. So how should we respond with justice to this issue? Well, Proverbs chapter 31 tells us how we should respond with justice. It says this, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. And who is more vulnerable than an unborn child? Who needs someone to speak for them more than an unborn child? In the ancient Near East, abortion wasn't super common, and yet children still suffered. In the ancient Near East, around the time when Moses was writing parts of the Old Testament, children were still being killed. They weren't being killed in the womb. They were being killed out of the womb. And the reason why is because they were trying to placate their fertility gods. And so they believed that gods like Baal and Molech would send more rain, which would feed their crops, if they sacrificed to their gods. And so in years when drought seemed to be extreme, the way they would try to get the attention of their gods was by causing their children to pass through the fire. Now, maybe you've read the Old Testament a bunch of times, and you've seen that phrase, they pass through the fire, and you're like, what exactly does it mean that the children were caused to pass through the fire? This is grievous, but here's the explanation. You see the statue of Molech on the screen. The statue of Molech would be made out of metal, and inside the statue, they would spark a fire. And the inferno of that fire would rage and it would heat up the metal on the outside of the statue. And you see how the statue had its arms held out. Those who wanted to sacrifice their children, their young, just-born babies, or maybe their barely old toddlers, they would take the child and put it in the arms of the idol after it had been heated up. And they would roast their child as an offering to their God. How did God feel about that? Uh, three verses, just so that there can be no dispute about how God felt about this act of child sacrifice. Let's begin with Leviticus chapter 18. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21, God says this about child sacrifice. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Giving up your children profanes the name of God. It continues, Deuteronomy, in chapter 12 and verse 31, where it says this, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord 
hate they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. The nation of Israel was pretty hard-hearted. They began doing the things that the nations around them were doing. Israel began, instead of trusting God, looking to the fertility gods of the nations around them to the point where they sacrificed their own babies and It was one of the major sins that caused the nation of Israel to be led into exile. Listen to what God said in Ezekiel. Chapter 16, verses 20 to 21, you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? Like God is 100% pro-child. God is 100% pro baby, and God says, what you have done is a grievous, grievous evil. But here's what I see in our culture, and here's the parallel. We have a culture that says, you need to be everything that you can be. Go determine your own destiny, and don't let any obstacle get in your way. And just as the people in the ancient Near East thought that they needed crops, the people in 2002, 22 America believe that they need an easy path to education, to career success, to fame, and a baby can get in the way of that. And so we sacrifice our children on the path to getting what we want. I wonder if God would not have said to his people in the Old Testament, do you not trust me? Do you not trust that I can bring the rain? Do you not trust that I can give the crops that will give you food and power your economy? And would God not say to people in our society, do you not trust that my plans for you are good? Do you not trust that you can still thrive in the midst of this uncertainty? Now, I believe that in many ways the church of Jesus Christ can be the answer to those prayers of desperation that young single mothers pray, and we're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But do we not believe that God can provide the solution to a pregnancy that seems challenging or unwanted? God loves children. So that's our information. Application, information, back to application with our final two points. So how do we live in light of the fact that it looks like the Supreme Court is on the verge of overturning Roe versus Wade? Let's talk about this point next. Lasting change comes from gospel transformation, not legislation. Now, friends, it's a good thing. It's a good thing when the laws of our land reflect God's heart for justice. God loves children, so it's a good thing when our laws reflect God's love for children. As new creation people, we work to provide glimpses of the new creation in our world now, and the end of legalized abortion can picture the new creation where death will have no place and destruction no longer occurs. We long for that. That's why we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But... Did you sense there was a but coming? There's a but coming. But even if the Supreme Court decision is released exactly as the draft on Monday night looks, there are still pragmatic and spiritual limitations. Let's begin by talking about some of the pragmatic limitations. The decision about abortion in our society will simply kick back the right to decide about abortion from the federal level to the state level. 
So instead of the Supreme Court deciding about abortion, in our case in Minnesota, it'll be St. Paul. Now, I've only lived in Minnesota for about a year, but what I know about Minnesota is it's like the bluest of the blue states. And so it's not likely that any laws about abortion are going to change for us anytime soon. The battle over abortion, in fact, is not over at the federal level. We already have people protesting outside the Supreme Court, protesting at Supreme Court justices' homes, and we know that though it doesn't appear likely now, they don't have the votes, Congress could, with just a few changes in seats, pass legislation making abortion legal nationwide. We know that with just a couple votes, they could end the filibuster, they could expand the Supreme Court, there could be a Supreme Court justice who gets a disease and dies, and all of a sudden it's 5-4 the other way. And so I just want to say this, our hope's not in the law, because the law can change. So though it's a good day when our law looks like God's law, we don't bake a cake and throw a party and say our work is done. Because here's the reality, what we're looking for is not a change of law. What we're truly looking for is a change of heart. Gospel transformation can do something that legislation cannot do. The, the, the law, at its best, can restrain wickedness and evil by fear of punishment. Laws condemn wrong behavior and threaten the sword of judgment. But that's not what the gospel does. And listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 17, speaking about what the gospel does. He says this, The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Laws condemn, Jesus saves. Here's the spiritual limitation of what is happening. And here's the key problem with Christian nationalism or any attempt to govern America by biblical ideals. Laws create external conformity, but not heart change. Now, in the case of abortion, it's a good thing to have laws that prevent people from hurting innocent little children. But these laws are not endgame. Salvation is endgame. The goal of the gospel is not to create a world where unbelievers are compelled by force of the law to behave like they were believers. The goal of the gospel is that the Spirit of God would grab a hold of the hearts of unbelievers with the wonderful news of the gospel, and when the Spirit of God gets a hold of hearts, the Spirit of God changes hearts because the gospel is a, transform is a transforming power. And when the gospel changes hearts, we don't have to worry about laws because when the gospel does its work, people start wanting what God wants. They start caring about what God cares about. And if people get changed by the gospel, there's not going to be a demand for abortion anymore because people will love the way God loves. Gospel transformation is the solution. See, we don't need a lot of laws on the book that keep people living like heaven while they're headed on a path toward hell. We need Christians who go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ so that lost people get found, so that the vulnerable get protected because people find their protection and their identity in Jesus Christ. You're like, you got a verse for that, Pastor? I've been kind of raised my whole life to hear that the church needs to be involved in politics. I do have a verse for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So in this setting of church discipline in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, it is not your job to tell non-Christians how to live. It's your job to make sure that Christians are living the way Jesus would have us to live. You know, I get way more angry about hypocrisy in the church than I do pro-choice people fighting for what they actually believe. I get way more angry about leaders in our evangelical world covering over sexual abuse and financial scandal, which is happening over and over and over and over and over in our evangelical subculture. And I just want to say, the church of Jesus Christ needs to reflect the purity of Jesus Christ before we condescendingly look down on the people who do not yet know Jesus Christ. Because it's our purity that is going to cause them to see the greatness of Jesus Christ. If we're not transformed, what hope do we have of saying to other people, you should be transformed the way we're transformed? We need to look like Jesus. And when our transformation makes us look like Jesus, that can lead to our last and final point. Love is the solution for abortion. The church of Jesus Christ must begin to see abortion not as a policy on which we hope to prevail, but as people who need to be loved. It's to our great shame that a young girl would feel more comfortable picking up the phone and calling Planned Parenthood instead of picking up the phone and calling a local pastor. Why has that happened? Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, recounts this very sad story. He was walking the streets of Chicago, and he encountered a sinful young woman. And this woman began sharing all the pain she was going through in her life. Philip Yancey looked at her and said, why don't you go to that church down the street? And the young woman looked back at Philip Yancey with incredulity in her voice, said to him, church, why would I go there? They'll just make me feel worse about myself. And why have we as the church of Jesus Christ earned a reputation that sinners aren't welcome and sinners will be shamed and shunned? We, as the church of Jesus Christ, must begin to reflect the heart of Jesus Christ. And the heart of Jesus Christ, I think, is found so well in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, where it says, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. God does not shame you into coming to faith. He does not yell at you into coming to faith. He loves you into faith. And when you see the cross of Jesus Christ, yes, there is judgment of God on sin, but the judgment of God falls on Jesus Christ so that the love of Jesus Christ can fall on the world. It's the kindness of Jesus that draws people to repentance. Church, hear this. The best way to prevent abortion is to offer a potential mother hope. She needs hope that she can afford food. She needs hope that she can afford a place to live. She needs some hope that she can have accessible childcare. She needs hope that she can find community and friendship and support and love. Hear this, my friends. Biblical justice about abortion is not getting a child born. It's not less than that. It certainly involves that. But biblical justice is helping women and children thrive. 
And women and children thrive when the love of God gets poured out. But see, here's what we do. Here's what we do. We look at pregnancy, crisis pregnancy, as a problem and a judgment for sin. And so we say, well, you got yourself in that situation. Don't compound your sin by killing your kid. And this poor, poor scared young girl potentially with no help from the dad, potentially with no family to fall back on, is saying, but how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to care for this child? I've got nothing and no one. And the church of Jesus Christ says, well, 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 go figure it out. And I just wonder if the love of God would say, we're going to come alongside you, and we're going to figure it out along with you, and maybe we're going to have to put our money where our mouth is. And maybe we're going to have to pay for some baby formula. Maybe we're going to have to pay for some diapers. And maybe we're going to have to do some stuff to show that we want you to thrive because you are not forced to live in the consequences of a bad choice. A child in your womb is not a punishment from God for an act already committed. My Bible says children are a blessing from the Lord. And I'm going to show you that that blessing will continue to be a blessing because I will bless you as you live life with that child. You know, a couple of years ago, I stumbled across a, a tweet on Twitter. It still makes me tear up almost every time I see it. I don't know who the young lady is that posted this tweet. I don't know if you can read it on the screen, but this is what she wrote. I, I was homeless. I was pregnant. I had hopped 17 houses. I slept in my car. I considered abortion for 16 weeks. I cried for 39 weeks. I went to Child Protective Services to put my baby in foster care. I went to church to find a family to give my kid away to. I left church with a home. My two-year-old daughter's upstairs sleeping. Now, I know that not all of you can take a young lady into your house, but some of you can. And not all of us can do everything to help with this, but all of us can do something. And if we say that the church of Jesus Christ is the place where image bearers are protected and loved, then the church of Jesus Christ needs to be the place where we love hurting, and vulnerable people because love is the solution to the abortion problem. And I believe this. I believe it with all my heart. We will not yell at a woman outside an abortion clinic into the arms of Jesus. But if we love her and through the love of Jesus show her that the people of God care, I believe that the Holy Spirit through that will gently guide that woman into the arms of Jesus when our gospel actions allow gospel conversations and we can share that it's what Jesus has done that can transform their lives. That's what we want, gospel transformation. So we talk a lot, we talk a lot about issues in our society. We talk a lot about all the unrest down in the inner city. I think most of you are wise to the fact that abortion is not just a justice issue, it's also a racial justice issue. Racism has become such a big, hot topic issue in our churches, but we know 
to black children are aborted at significantly, shockingly higher percentages than white children. And if we say we're people who care about the image of God, maybe, maybe for you it means we're not gonna sit in our comfortable rural or suburban homes and talk about how that evil abortion is attacking the inner city. Maybe it means I'm gonna go down to Minneapolis and I'm gonna find a mom who needs some love. There's great organizations, Love Inc., Embrace Grace. There's great organizations that can help get you connected with people you can love. So as the band comes forward, I want to give us opportunity to reflect on everything we've just talked about. Maybe in your reflection, this has been a personal issue, and you just need to take some time and say, Holy Spirit of God, I need you to bring healing into my heart. And I pray that your new identity in Jesus Christ would heal you from the scars of your past. Maybe as you reflect, the Spirit of God would say, I want you to think differently about this issue. I want you to think of people who need loved. And maybe the Spirit of God is showing you a way that you can tangibly be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to hurting people so that they can come with you and say, yes, I will praise your name in the lowest valley. Yes, I will. When my heart is heavy, bless the Lord. God, that's our prayer. Would you use us to a world that is broken, to a world that needs new creation? Would you help us to offer previews of that new creation as we love on those who are hurting and confused. Would you use us as pictures of your new creation as you restore us from our sin and our brokenness and our past? That, Lord, we would say, I lift your name high. Yes, I will. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Highland Sermon Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Highland Community Church, please feel free to visit our website, www.highlandchurchmn.com. Our website link is also available in the show notes of today's episode, along with links to our social media pages. Thank you for listening, and always remember this, you are loved.